It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is a pleasure to welcome back to our show... Mr. Byram Bridal and uh, Mr. Cheyenne Sharif. We had them, uh, Byram and Cheyenne, on the show earlier in the year. We were talking about it that time, uh, before the vaccines had actually appeared on our horizon. We were talking about the timelines associated with vaccines and them being unrealistic. So uh, we, we are now seeing, of course, and we've already had some of these vaccines delivered to the country, and it's a pleasure to have both Byram and Cheyenne back on to talk about, um, you know, the, the sense of we've heard some of the concerns still around the vaccines, the timelines, the, the, the rush to get them to us, which, of course, is very valid in terms of wanting to get these vaccines to uh, people so that we can uh, get this, this COVID-19 thing under control to some degree, because it's still going to take a long time for these vaccines to get into the hands of everyone in the world. They've got to be be distributed. And uh, as we know, some of these vaccines have to be kept at very, very cold temperatures. But there's also differences in some of these vaccines from different companies. So we really wanted to get uh, Byram and, and Cheyenne back on to talk about some of these things and talk about the realistic uh, approach that is now being taken to uh, getting these uh, vaccines into the hands of Canadians and people right around the world. But first, a little bit more about Byram and Cheyenne. Byram Bridal, he's an associate professor of viral immunology in the Department of Pathiobiology at the University of Guelph, as well as Cheyenne Sharif, he's a professor of immunology and associate dean, research and Graduate Studies, also at the University of Guelph. So, Byram and Cheyenne, welcome back to the show. Hello, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for having us, David. Yes, and and so you you heard me give that opening. Um, How have you guys been uh, perceiving what's been going on around the planet as far as hearing about, you know, the these vaccines that are coming out from from different companies around the world, you know, uh, and 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 their implementation. Who who would like to start? Uh, I could I could start first, uh, David. So one of the things uh, that, that I just like to point out is, um, you know, as you mentioned, interestingly, we we talked to you uh, some time ago about the vaccine timeline, mm. uh, and at the time we. You know, we essentially uh, insinuated that any vaccines that were being developed and were still uh, in, in the fa- in, a, in a phase of research prior to clinical trials um, would, you know, would not be ready anytime soon. And that certainly has been the case. We had also mentioned that the, um, that the, the lead vaccines that were in clinical trials at that time, uh, that there was probably a low probability that they would be ready by by the new year, early mm-hmm. 2021. Mm-hmm. So one thing I want to point out is, um, you know, kudos to these companies. They have, uh, and, and the regulatory agencies that have obviously found ways to dramatically speed up the process because they have shattered, you know, the previous record, which was about four years for an Ebola vaccine that was developed by Merck. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so the, the speed at which this has happened has been completely, it's been absolutely remarkable. Uh, and like I said, shatters all previous records by by a long shot. Um, 
And and the, the other thing that comes out of this uh, that really stands out is uh, both two of the front runner vaccines, um, you know, one that was approved is the, the, the Pfizer vaccine at the moment, uh, but Moderna is also a front runner still and has applied for approval. Both of them are RNA, we call RNA-based vaccines. So it's, it takes uh, a bit of genetic material that codes for a piece of the SARS coronavirus too. And um, that we have never had a, an RNA-based vaccine uh, that's been approved for use in people ever before. So it also represents a brand new vaccine technology. Uh, so this is the first time that, that uh, we will be using RNA-based vaccines. And that, so what that does, that opens the door to a, a brand new technological platform that could potentially be used for all kinds of different um, infectious diseases in the future. But the other thing that I want to point out is because of this uh, world record shattering pace at which uh, you know, the Pfizer vaccine has ultimately uh, been approved on is we also are faced with questions about these vaccines that we've never faced in the past. Um, so, so one of several questions that I can think of, for example, is uh, I've been having people ask me if I can you know, assure them of the long-term safety of this vaccine. So that, that's an interesting question, because if you think about it, the fastest vaccine before, if it was four years going through the clinical trial process, that meant uh, literally, quite literally that we had years of uh, safety data on those vaccines before uh, before that vaccine got rolled out into the general public. Whereas uh, on the flip side here, these vaccines didn't exist eight to 10 months ago. So as they're being rolled out, you know, starting today in Canada, they will, uh, they are being, we, we have in contrast only months of, of safety data. So by definition, we can't with 100% confidence uh, comment on the long-term safety, let's say the safety, you know, for a year or more beyond uh, vaccination. Mm. Yes, understood. Um, as you mentioned, these are, are a new type of vaccine. How does that differ from what we were dealing with before? You said these are RNA vaccines. What were we dealing with before this? So maybe, you know, um, I should also just uh, go back to your first question, David, sure, and, sure. and just wanted to say that, you know, it, it's it's been extraordinary. And let's put it this way, you know, the last nine months of human life has been absolutely extraordinary. Mm. We've been able to adopt uh, new technologies. We've been able to adapt to new technologies, you know, Teams, Zoom, uh, Google uh, Meet, all of those things, you know, were completely a foreign language to most of us, but we were able to adapt to those, you know, almost instantaneously over a matter of probably a day or so. And the, uh, what Byram just mentioned about the regulatory process for approval of vaccines, this would have taken us probably years, not days to approve a new right. technology. Even an old technology would have taken us probably months for approval for the approval process within Health Canada or other regulatory bodies. But it merely took us a few hours or a few days to uh, approve these vaccines. I, I do actually have to say, you know, kudos to those individuals in Health Canada, FDA, or other regulatory bodies who were actually able to do this, you know, on, a, on such short notice. So my kudos to them. And I think, you know, their service is, is has just begun. I think we are going to be faced with a few other, perhaps, you know, half dozen more vaccines in the future, and each of them would require the same level of scrutiny. So um, I, I cannot say enough thanks to those individuals who've done this. 
Um, and, and going uh, back to the second question that you asked both of us, which is what exactly are RNA vaccines? So these are genetic materials uh, that would encode a protein of the virus, the so-called spike protein. If you can think of the protein with things, uh, if you can think of the virus with things sticking out of, of its membrane, those things that stick out are the so-called spike proteins. And they give the virus, the coronavirus, its name because the virus, the coronavirus is named due to the fact that it looks like a sun, looks like the sun. So it has projections coming out of its membrane and spike protein is actually what makes up those projections. And the virus utilizes those spike proteins in order to attach itself to your cell and my cell. And as a result of that, then it can gain entry inside the cell. So what scientists have done at Moderna and Pfizer and um, uh, the small biotech company in Germany that created the platform for Pfizer, they've used the technology for getting the RNA, which is the genetic material that encodes that spike protein, and then put it in small so-called nanoparticles. These are, I would say, lipid cages very, very tiny lipid cages. They put those RNA molecules inside those tiny cages, and then they've delivered those tiny cages into humans. And I presume that prior to humans, they must have had some preclinical work using laboratory animal models in order to see whether or not, first of all, those RNA molecules can be delivered. Secondly, are they safe? Thirdly, can they produce the spike protein in its entirety? And fourthly, it, are those molecules that are being produced, the spike proteins, can they induce an immune response in the host, be it in preclinical models or in humans? And most importantly, even if we produce an immune response, it doesn't mean that we are protected. So really to have the cherry on the, on the top of the cake, they wanted to look at efficacy of the vaccine. And lo and behold, it has fulfilled all of the above. You can deliver it. It is safe to, to a great extent. There may be some reactions caused in some individuals, especially in some individuals who are prone to um, allergies. Mm. But by and large, it's safe in great majority of individuals. And on top of that, it can induce an immune response. And more importantly, it's it can confer uh, protection against the virus up to approximately 95% or maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more, depending on uh, the age group and so forth, and also depending on what kind of vaccine that has been used, either the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine. Mm. Fascinating. I appreciate you very much describing the cell. That's, of course, we see that all over the place, that globe with the with the, those protein uh, projectile things that you mentioned coming out uh, as to what this COVID uh, cell looks like. You know, in on its own right, it, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? How how it operates, it, it's quite uh, quite brilliant in, in terms of its its ability to be able to function that way. The cell itself, the COVID itself, is it, it's interesting when you look at that from a scientific perspective, I guess. Yes, indeed, it is actually quite um, quite amazing how the virus interacts with its host. The reality is that virus utilizes very small number of molecules in order to interact with its host cells. And some of those molecules um, on our side, on the host side, seem to have 
high affinity for this particular protein of the virus, i.e. they bind with very high uh, strength to, um, to the protein. If our proteins were binding with less strength, probably, you know, this virus would not have caused so much problem. But the flip side of the coin is that if the protein would have actually bound with much more strength, we could have actually seen a very different type of virus uh, transmission and perhaps, you know, even more disease causing capacity mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. virus. So this virus has the, I would say, merely the right amount of, you know, strength to bind to our cells not too much and not too little. If it had too much of strength, it could have actually caused perhaps much more disease. Mm. If it had less of it, probably it would not have actually been such a terrible virus Mm. for us. Probably we would have, you know, responded to it with not much difficulty and probably the amount of disease causing of um, capacity of the virus would have been diminished quite substantially. Now you, you threw out some numbers there uh, in terms of its efficiency, around 95% roughly that we've been hearing about. Um, the effectiveness, do we know much about the, the, uh, how long the, the, these uh, vaccines might last in any one person? And, and, and there's differences as well. We know that I think the Pfizer one is, is it, I'm not sure what, which one is a dual uh, application. You, you need to get two shots, and one is just a single shot, I think. Yeah, I can comment on that, uh, David. So uh, both of the RNA, well, in fact, uh, the vast majority of the vaccination strategies among the uh, front-running companies, including Pfizer, is uh, it's a two-dose regimen. So, so that's very important to keep in mind. So anytime you're hearing about the rollout of, of doses and the numbers of doses that have pre, been pre-purchased by countries such as Canada, uh, you, you, in theory, have to cut that yes. number in half in yes. terms of number of people that can be uh, sufficiently vaccinated. So Pfizer, for a, a example, they, they have they have some data. They have some data that suggests that there's a reasonable level of protection conferred by their first dose of the vaccine, but they're not going to assure uh, this, this uh, 94% effectiveness of the vaccine unless people get both doses of, of their vaccine. And right. so one thing to keep in mind right away is, uh, and it depends on the company. So, for example, between Pfizer and Moderna, right, they, they, they both have these RNA vaccines. Both of them require two doses. One is 28 days apart. The other one's 21 days apart. Mm. Um, and then when they were looking at their uh, study subjects in their phase three trials, which is where they define as effectiveness, they waited either one or two weeks after that second dose. Mm. And then what they did on this trial, so this effectiveness that you're hearing about is based on somebody getting through the entire vaccination regimen. So that would mean that they would have to, uh, so that would be between five to six weeks, right? So they waited until uh, a week or two after the second dose. And then if an individual did not have COVID-19, if they did not have the SARS coronavirus 2 at that point in time, then they were officially enrolled into that clinical trial. And so the effectiveness of the vaccine was based on uh, the volunteers potentially acquiring COVID-19 after that time point. So in other words, if you want to apply that 94% effectiveness, uh, that excludes this large window up front, meaning that um, you know, during the vaccination process, because it is a fairly long process, people are susceptible you know, uh, during that time of infection. So they people to keep that in mind, right? Mm. It's going to be six weeks after the first dose. 
before they can consider themselves to be part of that you know, population where the 94% effectiveness has been seen. And the second part of your question is absolutely critical. This is a question that really everybody should be asking right now, which is uh, you're asking how long, how long this protection would last. Uh, well, first of all, just before I touch on that, let me, let me just say one thing. Let me say one other front runner company, which is Johnson & Johnson, mm -hmm. which has what's known as the Janssen vaccine. And this is a virus vectored vaccine. So a different kind of vaccine than the RNA vaccines. What this one does is it uses a safe, non-disease causing virus as a Trojan horse to deliver the spike protein from the SARS coronavirus 2. And, and their trial, they, are, they have two arms. They're testing the effectiveness of their vaccine, both as a single dose and a, a double dose. Um, so that one, that's one vaccine that does have the potential, should the effectiveness look good in that single dose arm, there's the possibility that they could get their vaccine approved to be delivered as a single dose. Um, and, and so that's, that's important to keep in mind uh, because when it comes to the rollover of the vaccine, uh, if everything else is equal, safety and, and effectiveness, then obviously a single dose vaccine is going to be able to uh, uh, get out uh, into the general public uh, about twice as fast by definition as one that requires two doses. Now, now, with that said, the, the critical part, it, it, the whole purpose of these vaccines is to induce an immune response in people that will protect them from infection with the SARS coronavirus 2. So what we, so what, what immunologists refer to as the key uh, um, sort of measure of, of a vaccine is what we call duration of immunity. And what that simply means is how long after a person is vaccinated, do they remain protected from that infectious disease? So as applied to these SARS coronavirus vaccines, then how long after the people get vaccinated, will they remain protected uh, from the risk of COVID-19? And this again, so, so, and what I can tell you is that uh, we have vaccines, you know, that are in use that are all over the place in terms of duration of immunity. We have very good childhood vaccines that, that will confer protection for decades. Um, but on the other side, we also have uh, examples of some vaccines that have a very short duration of immunity, maybe even as short as half a year. And uh, what that means then is if, if it only has protects for half a year, that means after half a year, that individual would become susceptible again to that particular disease. Now, this is where it's interesting because of this ultra rapid timeline. The duration of immunity is one of these questions I mentioned right at the beginning uh, of our discussion. That, that is outstanding. Uh, so so I, I, I mentioned one at that time and mentioned there's several others that are outstanding um, as a result of this fast timeline. So if you think about it again, we go back to the example of the previous fastest vaccine, which took four years to navigate the clinical trial process and then got rolled out into people. Again, by definition, that meant that we had years of duration of immunity data, right? We knew we had a pretty good idea that that vaccine was gonna be able to confer protective immunity uh, for several years. Again, because these vaccines didn't exist 10 months ago, uh, we have very little duration of immunity data. In fact, for these RNA vaccines, there was some data that was just published last week in the, um, uh, one of the medical journals, one of the top medical journals, and it's interesting. So even though the vaccines were in, have been to people for months, the actual formal duration of immunity data 
that was published. They just published an update last week, and that brought the duration of immunity data to 90 days, 90 days, nine zero, so about three months. Um, and it still looks good. So what that means is, you know, uh, shortly after vaccination, they could measure the magnitude of the immune response. And their data so far shows that 90 days later, the, the magnitude of the immune response is remaining high. So that, that looks very positive. However, uh, to put in perspective, that is only three months of, of data that we have right at the moment. So what that means is we don't, we don't know what's going to happen beyond that. Uh, the best case scenario is that that immunity remains high for you know, a year or two. Essentially, what we need is we need that immunity to remain high for as long as it takes to roll out these vaccines. Right. Right. So for us to be able to achieve that goal of, quote, herd immunity, mm-hmm. which is at least 60 percent of people immune. So the virus can no longer efficiently spread among our population. So but the worst case scenario would be, for example, if this immunity did suddenly drop off precipitously um, and if it, it and if the duration of immunity was only six months or eight months and it looks like it's going to take probably well beyond a year to get enough people vaccinated, mm-hmm. right, that would that could potentially be a little bit disastrous because the people being immunized right now would be susceptible to the disease again before yes. we achieved herd immunity. Yes. Yes, understood. Uh, all, all good points. And thank you for, for uh, sharing that. Before we go any further, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM. And then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is Moment of Truth, and I'm your host, David Moses. My guests are Mr. Byram Bridal. He's an associate professor of viral immunology in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph, as well as Cheyenne Sharif. He's a professor of immunology and associate dean, research and graduate studies, also at the University of Guelph. We had both Byram and Cheyenne on the show earlier in the year, and we wanted to have them back on now that we we have more of a, an idea of what we're looking at in terms of the vaccines that are rolling out around the world now from different companies. Uh, they were mentioned, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and uh, Johnson & Johnson, uh, as, as, as we we were just talking about. And gentlemen, it's a real pleasure to have you back on on the show and talk about this. It's, you know, something that I, I thought about when we when we were through going through this about the vaccine. And, and it goes right back, you know, we were all told to get the flu shot. And we were, you know, they, they offer us a flu shot every year, because the the flus change, they alter, as we all know. So we, we have to keep getting these flu shots. Now, how is that different than introducing a vaccine for something like this? Because I, I keep wondering about how do they know what to give us in terms of, of a shot for, for something that hasn't hit us yet? We, we're, you know, it's still coming. And so how is that different than creating something new or creating something that we get recurrently um, for, for viruses like the flu? So, David, I, I can probably take take um, take on the question. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, th- there is one big difference between influenza viruses and coronaviruses, and obviously, there are also a lot of similarities. So, we talked about RNA vaccines. The reality is that the genetic material of both coronaviruses and influenza viruses is indeed RNA, um, um, and and uh, that that's one big similarity. But there are also a lot of differences between the two. 
coronaviruses, unlike influenza viruses, don't have a huge amount of propensity to mutate themselves and their genetic material. So influenza viruses have a very bad habit of not only mutating their genes, but also they can reassort. And what I mean by reassortment, just if you can imagine, you know, trying to exchange, you know, your clothing, you know, with a friend or with a neighbor, influenza viruses do exactly that. When they see another counterpart, another influenza virus, especially, you know, in domestic animal species, for example, in pigs, you know, they have a tendency to exchange their genetic material. So, uh, as a result of that, you know, when you have two influenza viruses coming into a, a, a host, an intermediate host, let's say, for example, in pigs or perhaps even in humans, all of a sudden they have a tendency to exchange their genetic material. And as a result of that, you have emergence of novel viruses inst- almost instantaneously. And on top of that, they have a tendency to mutate their genetic material so they can generate very new viruses and novel viruses all the time, Mm. all the time. Mm. And that's why we need to renew our vaccination every year. In case of coronaviruses, they can mutate themselves, but the rate of mutation is not really as great as the rate of mutation in, in, in influenza viruses. Also, they don't really have a huge amount of tendency to exchange their genetic material. Just imagine that they would have actually been able to do. And then, you know, we had worked for a number of months on Moderna or Pfizer vaccines, and all of a sudden we were faced with a brand new virus that didn't even look remotely similar to the original virus, that would have really created a huge amount of, I would say, issues, you know, for the vaccines that we have available. And we would have probably, you know, had to do what we do for seasonal influenza vaccination, which is to change our vaccine every year. But thankfully, coronaviruses don't have that kind of capacity. They do, but they don't exercise that kind of capacity. Mm. Although there is uh, there is not some evidence that they can, in fact, mutate, and perhaps some of those mutations could cause issues for immunogenicity and protective efficacy of vaccines, such as, for example, the work done in mink uh, populations has has actually shown that mink um, can, in fact, create a milieu for, for coronaviruses, for SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19 to undergo mutations, and some of those mutants are no longer... Um, uh, we sh- probably they're not going to be uh, protected against by, va- by vaccines, even though we don't really have any evidence for it. But there is a possibility for that. Um, so we need to be a bit vigilant about, you know, these new mutants that emerge in, in, in humans or in other uh, species, other animal species. Um, but, but aside from that, I, I would say coronaviruses are not actually too difficult to create a vaccine against them. And in fact, if you look at, you know, the, the chickens that you and I eat, many of them are vaccinated against coronaviruses. And coronavirus vaccines that are used in, for example, poultry industry are quite efficacious. We've been able to um, control one of the deadliest um, diseases in the poultry industry using a, a variety of different types of vaccines against this particular coronavirus, which is called infectious bronchitis virus in chickens. However, there are actually mutations of these infectious bronchitis virus that could, in fact, be quite resistant to vaccination. And as a result of that, they require a new generation of vaccines. So what I'm really saying is that, you know, at the moment, based on 
the type of viruses that we are dealing with, we believe that the vaccines that are currently available, and Byram talked about three of them, there's also a fourth one, uh, the one that has been uh, developed by AstraZeneca uh, in collaboration with Oxford University. That one also is a vector, uh, is a virus vectored vaccine. Uh, there's also a Russian vaccine that's, um, that's becoming quite, um, um, quite successful. As, and that one also is a virus vector vaccine. So all of these could actually provide a very good, uh, I would say, ammunition against coronaviruses as long as they don't mutate. So, so I agree completely with Professor uh, Sharif, uh, and uh, he's explained very well the, the difference in the biology of the, the two viruses, the influenza viruses and the coronaviruses, and why the former requires the vaccines to be renewed every year, and the coronavirus likely, uh, if anything, would probably change relatively slowly over time. But uh, just to highlight again, what did happen in the mink in in uh, Denmark does highlight, right, that uh that, that new variants can uh, develop, uh, certainly in these mink populations. So that, that, that the mink now have been proven to be a, what we call a reservoir for this virus. So that would be a mm. population uh, that, that's densely housed, that, that can readily be infected, that facilitates the infection, meaning allows the virus to replicate. They can, the mink can pass the virus uh, between one another. And so that means the virus can go through many replication cycles and live long-term in that species. And that, that's where a virus has the opportunity to potentially change. And indeed, the coronavirus would change slowly over time relative to an influenza virus. But what happened in, in Denmark does highlight the fact that it can result in a fundamentally a new version of the virus. So a new variant emerged and it had, had accumulated four mutations in the mink by the time it got back into people. Uh, indeed, the good news about that one is it doesn't seem to be a more dangerous virus than the, the parental virus, nor is there any evidence that it's going to be able to evade either natural, naturally acquired immunity, nor the vaccine-induced immunity from these front-runner vaccines, uh, which is good news. But it does show the potential, and that's where the concern came from, right? There is the potential for, because these mutations are random, there is the potential in the future sometime if there's these reservoir populations like the mink that that uh, a variant that comes out and, and gets back into people could potentially be more dangerous or evade immunity. Uh, and if it was sufficiently changed, and this is the thing when the, the, the variant that came out in Denmark did have some changes to the spike protein, which is what's being targeted. Right. So some of the lessons we're learning from this is maybe we should, uh, you know, our next generation COVID-19 vaccines should incorporate uh, an additional uh, target or two on the virus, because it's very difficult for a virus to change too much of mm. its physical structure without compromising its own fitness and ability mm. to survive. Mm. So, so that, that's definitely one uh, one aspect. And then we do have to carefully monitor these uh, potential reservoir populations, right? And, and there's a little bit of concern right now because, you know, we, we just had uh, introduction now of the SARS coronavirus 2. We have confirmation into mink in Canada. Specifically, that was at a farm in Fraser Valley in British Columbia. And uh, that the farm is currently under quarantine and being monitored, and they're trying to consider, you know, what to do in, in that scenario. Uh, but there is that possibility. And the other thing that I just want to mention, um, although these viruses aren't prone to the rapid mutation and and, and large changes uh, in in their in their makeup that the influenza virus is, uh, one thing we have to keep in mind is as these vaccines are now being rolled out. This is the first time that this virus will be under any kind of substantial immunological pressure, right? Um, as we slowly vaccinate our population, uh, and, and if you think about it, this is this would be akin to 
um, antibiotic resistance, which many of your listeners would probably be familiar with, right? And, and, and so indeed, anytime we go to a physician and they prescribe antibiotics to us, right, we're always told follow through on the full duration of treatment, right? So if they prescribe it for 10 days, if after three or four days, you're feeling very well, you're not supposed to stop your antibiotics. You continue for the full 10 days, even if you're feeling very well at that point. The reason being is you want to make sure that you kill off all of those pathogenic bacteria that are being treated. Because if you do not, and you just leave a few behind, you're going to over time select for viruses that are resistant to that antibiotic. Right. And this is the potential concern with the SARS coronavirus 2 right now. If you have a, a potentially dangerous virus, and you, the ideal way to eliminate it by vaccination would be to rapidly vaccinate your entire population. The reason being is that would, there would be no opportunity for that virus to change and evade that vaccine-induced immunity. But in fact, we're kind of forced into this. We're going to have this very long piecemeal rollout of the vaccine, right? We've already seen that. So in Canada, every province is getting, you know, a few thousand doses. So they're only going to be able to vaccinate initially a very tiny percentage of their population. Um, and then we're going to be hoping for subsequent doses to come in later. We're going to vaccinate more. And there's probably going to be multiple rounds of this. And that, in essence, is actually probably the worst, uh, or I guess the approach that would best facilitate potential mutation of this virus. Because what happens then is as people start slowly, as a population, we slowly start developing immunity against this virus. Um, and we have a slowly shrinking reservoir what that does, it applies selection pressures, right? And then if this virus is going to survive in the population, the only way it's going to be able to do so is if it randomly generates mutants that are capable of bypassing this vaccine-induced immunity. So uh, yes, this vaccine, this, this virus changes slowly um, and it usually just makes small changes at any given time. But um, the big question is, how will that biology be impacted by the slow rollout and gradual buildup of immunological pressure against this virus? Okay, we only have a couple of minutes left. I did have some other questions, but as usual, we're going to have to have you guys back on the show again, I think maybe in the new year or once we get further into this so that we can hear and get your feedback on, on how it's going, et cetera, et cetera, and what we're seeing at that time. Uh, quickly, you know, uh, the temperatures these things have to be kept at are very, very cold. Why is, why is that? Shane. Maybe I can, yeah. Maybe I can chime in here, uh, David. And I and I see my timer. We only have three minutes, so yeah. I, I'll try to be very quick. Uh, RNA is highly unstable, and it requires low temperatures. I can tell you that we've worked with RNA of both human animals and 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 also viruses, and uh, in my lab, and and uh, and our RNA is very much prone to degradation at room temperature. So if you keep RNA at room temperature, I would say within a matter of few minutes, perhaps even less than an hour, you have complete degradation of mm -hmm. RNA. Okay. So that's actually one of the reasons that it has to be kept in the so-called cold chain. Okay. And the cold chain that we usually apply for, I would say, childhood disease vaccines, you know, is usually much higher than this, not minus 80. Uh, the, the Pfizer vaccine has to be kept at minus 80. And I suspect and I presume that it's primarily because of propensity of RNA to get degraded, even though they coat it with nanoparticles, lipid nanoparticles, I think, you know, it's still quite prone to degradation. I believe the Moderna vaccine is a little bit more resistant to, mm -hmm. um, to um, uh, higher temperatures. And that's probably, you know, a, a better way for sending uh, vaccine to 
more remote areas in Canada or around the globe. Mm. And, you know, the other thing we've heard about recently is because Canada is not a, a producing its own vaccine and we're, we're sort of at the whim of other uh, businesses and, and countries in terms of receiving ours. We, you know, and it, it was brought up, I heard uh, in the news recently, you know, we used to produce our own. Uh, what do you guys think about the, and, and just a quick answer, maybe, you know, uh, about the, the, is there a possibility we could start producing our own in the future? Uh, so this is a great question, David. What what this uh, pandemic has done for every country, including Canada, is really put a spotlight on weaknesses in our infrastructure when it comes to vaccine development. Uh, so, for example, uh, another issue is um, a lack of uh, containment level three facilities that can facilitate things like non-human primate trials, which are often what's needed to really accelerate uh, the development of vaccines towards clinical trials and testing humans. Uh, and, but you mentioned another, uh, for sure, the, the um, production or production capacity. Uh, so, yes, I, I think these have all been noted, and I'm sure that we're going to see some substantial investments into the future to shore up these uh, these critical weaknesses that have been highlighted by this pandemic. Great. Gentlemen, we're going to have to leave it there. I think we might get cut off. But thank you so much once again. We really look forward to having you back on the show in the new year once again to uh, bring us up to date on the further developments as we get through this. It's my pleasure, David. Take care. All right. Take Thanks care. Thanks very much, David. Take yep, care. Take Bye care now. and happy holidays to both of you. Happy holidays to you too. And that, of course, uh, is the voices of Byram Bridal, an associate professor of viral immunology in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph, and uh, Cheyenne Sharif, professor of immunology and associate dean in the research and graduate studies, also at the University of Guelph. And it's a pleasure to have them back on the show. We really look forward to having them back because I got some more questions for them. But that is this part of the show. So we want to thank you, our listeners, each and every day for listening to us. I'm your host, David Moses, and we will be back with more right after this now back to moment of truth with david moses element 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 fm welcome back to moment of truth i'm your host david moses you're listening to element fm in toronto and ottawa and that of course is at 1065 in toronto 957 in ottawa anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates as well as e l m n t f m and then uh just listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome back to the show Mr. Frank Sheck. He is film critic and political columnist for The Hollywood Reporter, and he is on the line joining us today to bring us up to date on the latest in the Electoral College votes uh, from yesterday, from the 14th, uh, confirming, of course, that uh, Joe Biden is the president. Uh, so, Frank, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So, uh, what have you heard, and what what would you say, Frank, since the last time we spoke? Because you know it was just prior, I think, to the election, or maybe just after. It was I can't remember exactly which. It seems like so long ago, all of a sudden. Um, <laughs> but anyway, you know, uh, it's all turned out uh, now that the results are in. Of course, uh, President Trump uh, has has challenged uh, this in many different ways: uh, uh, lawsuits, those kind of things. Uh, however, uh, the results uh, have kept coming in yesterday, confirming that uh, Joe Biden is uh, the president-elect and will be the president. Um, what are you hearing and what have you heard uh, from your end? Well, David, uh, maybe you've heard by now that Joe Biden was elected president. 
He he's been elected president so many times now. He might <laughs> he might as well be the seventy fifth president of the United. States. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, well said. Well said. It's breaking news. And by the way, Mitch McConnell, our distinguished leader of the Senate, just acknowledged mm. that we we have a president elect. It's all this, good news. Yeah, this comes you know more than a month after the election. Yes. <laughs> Listen, you know, the, the one thing I think we talked about a little bit prior to this was the way the system works in the states in, in, in terms of, of the voting and, and the Electoral College vote. And and so yesterday, that that's what was really going on, was the Electoral College vote. And, um, you know, I read a little bit about how the the, the, the electors are, are supposed to follow the popular vote uh, of the of the state. Is that how it works? Yeah, there are a couple of states that uh, the electoral votes are determined by uh, counties. But in in most cases, uh, the popular vote, all the electors vote for whoever wins the popular vote in their state. Yes. Now, normally, you know, this is a formality. Nobody Mm -hmm. pays attention to it. Nobody knew anything about it. But because of the upending that has been going on, You know, yesterday, which would normally not even be on anyone's radar, was covered like it was the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. Well, you just said it's, you know, it's a formality. But but why 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 have it then? And, And why does it play a role? Well, you know, it goes way back. And obviously, there are a lot of people in this country that are very unhappy with the role that it plays. Mm. But under normal circumstances, when there is election, we know the winner within 24 hours or perhaps a few days later, and the loser concedes the election. Mm. The electoral, you know, the electors vote a month later. But again, that is purely an official tally. It never has deviated from the regular election result. There have been a, a few cases where there have been what are called faithless electors, meaning that uh, they don't vote the way their state voted. Uh, that's generally only a handful of people. As far as I know, that did not even happen yesterday. Um, so it, it's, it really is just a part of the formality, just in the way that it won't be until next month that Congress officially certifies the electoral votes. And Vice President Pence has the honor of declaring the winner. What would you say the mood is in the country now? You know, prior to our, our in our last conversation, it, it was kind of tense down there. How would you say things have evolved? Uh, I wouldn't say it's any more relaxed. Oh, really? I, I, no, as a matter of fact, I you know, I could never have foreseen that the absolute worst part of Donald Trump's presidency would come after he was defeated. Really? Wow. Because what has happened the the Republican support for his attempts to subvert the election and to essentially organize a coup have been a profoundly disturbing view at a political party that clearly is no longer interested in democracy, 
but only in power mm. and asserting its will. And it's more disturbing than the last four years because that was Donald Trump being Donald Trump. Right. We know he's, you know, a, a sociopath, essentially. But the acquiescence of the Republican establishment, the fact that 17 attorneys general from Republican states signed on to this ridiculous lawsuit that everyone said was an absolute absurdity that went to the Supreme Court and a majority of the Republicans in the House signed on as well is deeply, deeply disturbing. And it just makes one wonder what the future of not only that party is, but the country, uh, because it, it truly is a threat to our political system, our way of life and democracy as we know it. I'm sorry if I'm understating things. <laughs> OK, um, I guess that <laughs> that's the reason we're seeing uh, President elect Joe Biden come out with some of the remarks that he's making about um, about democracy and about uh, the the everyday people, uh, Amer- every everyday Americans and, and those statements that we I keep seeing repeated in, in the things that he's saying. Yeah, last night he gave his most forceful denunciation of what uh, Donald Trump has done. Um, but, you know, he's walking, a, he's trying to walk a very careful line because he's trying to hold out an olive branch to the very politicians who are trying to subvert his presidency before it even gets st- started mm. and to the very people, um, Trump supporters, voters, who don't recognize him as a legitimate president. And their numbers are staggering. Mm. And I don't envy his task in the coming months and years. Frank, do you have any concern about, uh, because it's been quiet as far as I understand, you know, and what's going on in this somewhat of a transition as we've been hearing it unfold. But are, are, is there any concern about uh, civil unrest or those kind of things at this point in time still? Or Yeah, there there is always that concern. I, I think hopefully we've passed the period of the greatest risk hmm. now that the Supreme Court has firmly shut the door on this legal nonsense. Now that the Republican establishment, including Several senators and McConnell today are finally saying out loud what they've been saying privately since the election. Hopefully that will quell some of the dissent. Um, but, you know, up literally until Inauguration Day and not even and, and even after then, uh, there is always the risk of violence. There was violence this weekend. There was a demonstration in Washington, D.C. by the. Um, very badly named Proud Boys, mm. and several people were stabbed. And mm. I don't think that will be the end of it. Mm. But certainly there was a lot of anxiety about yesterday, to the point where electors, some of them had to do their votes in an undisclosed location, or the Michigan State House had to shut down to the public because of uh, threats of violence. Mm. But I'm hoping that starts to ease up. And I'm hoping that once Trump is out of the White House, 
that air will gradually be let out of the balloon. And and what are you hearing from from Trump and and the party in terms of you know now that uh, the results are are in uh, is he going to to leave uh, in a, a fair manner? <laughs> uh, no one quite knows what he's going to do. Uh, there is some speculation that he's going to go to Mar-a-Lago for the Christmas and not return to Washington. Mm. Um, literally, no one knows mm. what, what his plans are. And what about Trump at this point in time? What have you been seeing and what are you what are you uh, are you surprised at the actions that he has been taking in the last little while? <sighs> surprised? I, I think Donald Trump, we're long past the point of That's surprise. Right. right. It's, you know, profoundly disturbing. Mm. And, you know, he's tweeting. He, he was tweeting this morning. He's probably literally tweeting as we speak about election fraud and mm. all of that stuff. And they're still filing lawsuits. They mm. just filed a lawsuit in New Mexico, which has all of five electoral votes. Mm. Basically, what he's doing is trying to rev up his base for his future political prospects, if he intends to have them. Mm. And more importantly, raise money for his own ends. And he's been very successful at that to the tune of over $200 million. He was recently uh, sending out an urgent plea for funds to, uh, you know, vote the uh, Republican senators in Georgia without revealing the fact that the vast majority of the money that people were donating to him to his campaign is not going to that race. It's going to his own super PAC, which means that he will basically use, be able to use the money however he sees fit. He's he's basically bankrolling his post presidential life. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, something about uh, the threats that were being made and those kind of things, and and I see that uh, Joe Biden has also made reference to that in some of the things that he's saying, and hoping that we never see that again in 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 history. You know, through another election. Well, I as I said, I I don't think it's necessarily over. Right. I think the threat remains, and. I think the threat will remain for a long time to come. I, I think we've kind of hit a tipping point. Mm. And what was previously almost unimaginable is now an all too likely possibility. Mm. Well, you know, the other thing you alluded to there was about the future of Biden and, and the role that he is going to take on and the challenges that he is going to face what might we anticipate in seeing as that unrolls? <clears throat> well, a lot will obviously depend on the upcoming election in Georgia, which I am unfortunately not terribly optimistic about. Mm. If we do not win both Senate races, then he will be hamstrung by a Republican-controlled Senate that has previously demonstrated not only a willingness, but um, an absolute zeal for obstruction and for preventing a president of an opposition party from accomplishing anything. Uh, when Obama became president, McConnell famously said that his number one goal was guaranteeing that he had a one-term presidency. And although there, you know, there's a lot of talk about how Biden and McConnell are old friends and they get along and they communicate, 
Um, I don't have any great hopes that that is going to change. As a matter of fact, the Senate that Biden used to be a part of is a very different animal now. It is much, much more partisan, much more rabid. The Republicans are much more extreme. Um, so it's it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. And I think he's got a difficult road ahead. I do think that out of all the Democratic candidates, he, you know, was the best choice because he does have the best chance to get through to these people and and, and accomplish things. Mm. But um, it's going to be it's going to be brutal. So as it goes forward, then what what will be will Trump remain as the head of the uh, of the Republican uh, uh, Party? And, and what will happen after uh, Biden takes over in that regard? Well, the general viewpoint is that the greatest likelihood is that he's going to be a kind of shadow president, mm. endlessly tweeting, commenting, uh, interfering, mm. trying to exert his will, trying to exert his power. The fact that he lost the election by a huge popular margin, one of, one of the biggest in decades, um, does not seem to be the... Uh, you know, it doesn't seem to be suppressing the Republican acquiescence and obedience. You know, they, they are still as terrified of him as they ever were. Mm. That is why they have all collaborated on this ridiculous election fraud nonsense, because they are afraid of his base. They are afraid of his displeasure and that he will make it known. Mm. And look at what is happening to the Georgia governor now. I mean, Trump has turned on him with a camp. Brian Kemp used to be one of Trump's most faithful lackeys, but because he actually developed a little bit of a spine and maintained a legal fair election in Georgia, Trump has turned on him with a vengeance. And his political future <laughs> is uh, looking tenuous in Georgia. Wow. Wow. Uh, I guess we're just going to have to keep watching and see uh, how things uh, develop. Um, you mentioned that uh, Vice President Pence is going to announce, uh, the, you know, um, uh, about uh, Joe Biden uh, being the next president. Is is Trump going to ever admit that he's lost the election, do you think? Never, never. Mm. And and Pence will do. I wouldn't be surprised if Pence calls in sick that day. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll, <laughs> we'll have to but, wait. You know, he, he's, you know, out of, out of all the Republican politicians, he, you know, he is facing <laughs> an incredibly difficult task mm. because he clearly has aspirations to run in four years and he needs Trump supporters, but he also has to stand on his own two feet at a certain point. Mm. So, you know, he is in a very difficult bind. So it really sounds like from what you're saying that the Republican Party and and, uh, and President Trump will continue uh, with their uh, endeavor to try and undermine things uh, over the next four years. Absolutely. And I, I wish I could say that was a new phenomenon, but that's basically been the way they've approached politics now for about 30 years. Except that it sounds it sounds more uh, 
exaggerated, more, uh, you know, it just sounds like it's going to be bigger. Well, I, I do think that's a direct result of Trump. He mm-hmm. has unleashed the Kraken mm-hmm. and the id of that party and has made it so extreme um, that I, I actually don't think there's a turning back. I, I don't really think there is a Republican Party anymore. There is a Trumpism party. Mm. The real Republicans essentially have been driven out of the party. John Kasich, uh, the former Ohio governor, uh, recently commented, I, I didn't leave the Republican Party. The party left me. Mm. And he's far from the only one. Mm. Um, you know, a, a Michigan congressman just resigned from the Republican Party and made a grand statement about ethics and morality and uh, fair elections and freedom and all that. Of course, he's resigning from Congress in two weeks anyway. So mm. not exactly a major profile in courage. Mm. He had no intention of running again. Right. Frank, we're going to have to leave it there, but it's always fascinating speaking with you, and we, we appreciate you taking the time. I look forward to speaking with you in the new year to follow up with this as we, uh, as we continue to uh, follow this uh, in the news. It's the voice of Frank Sheck. He's a film critic and political columnist for The Hollywood Reporter, and we were speaking to him uh, about uh, the... Uh, well, uh, the election uh, that continues in the United States, and we now know that uh, uh, President-elect Joe Biden, as well as Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, will be uh, taking over the White House at some point in the future. And uh, we'll be following up with Frank in the new year, and we look forward to doing that. And thank you for listening to Element FM each and every day and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and we'll see you again next time. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element. Element FM.